like kids who are in their teens, like college students, I don't think a lot of them are turning on like Food Network. They're like tuning in to the old kind of generations of cookbook authors, recipe developers, things like that. Like video content is really what young people consume, whether that is on YouTube or TikTok right now. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hazel. Today on the show, Matt is speaking with Jenny Zhang, a writer and cultural critic who has worked at Eater, Slate, and currently is a staff writer at Gawker. She is also the co-host of the podcast Criticism is Dead. Matt, what did you and Jenny talk about? I've long been a fan of Jenny's incisive journalism and podcasting and wanted to have her on the show. We talked about what interests her in the world of food and about some of her memorable writing that has covered things like food TikTok, Pizza Hut in China, and the regular food of our lives, which she covers in her Gawker column called Regular Food Review. It's a must read. I love it. We also talk about the world of NFTs in food. What is going on in NFTs in food, I ask? Well, that is my question, and she answers it well. Here's Matt catching up with Jenny. Jenny Jung, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You merged fast food with real journalism and, and memoir and writing with your 2018 Eater story, uh, which won awards, uh, and it's it's about Pizza Hut in Beijing. And I'll link to it in our show notes uh, and I recommend uh, our, our listeners here to, to, to click on that, that link because it's a great piece. But to summarize, what was that piece about? Like what, what, what did you want to say about Pizza Hut in, in Beijing? Uh, yeah, that, that piece, which I wrote, I think like when I was right after I had left Eater, uh, so I was, I was working on Slate and I did that as a freelance piece or Eater. Um, basically... Eater used to have, uh, maybe it still has, I'm not really sure, it, but it had this uh, long running series called Life in Chains. Basically, uh, personal essays, like sort of memoir style essays from writers who are remembering uh, parts of their lives as it relates to these these big chains that a lot of people are familiar with. So uh, I was interested in doing this in particular because my family sort of had a connection to Pizza Hut in that um, every year or every two years, whenever we were able to go back to China and see my grandmother on my mother's side, um, one of the things that, that we always do is we buy Pizza Hut in China, uh, in Beijing together and you know bring it home to her in her apartment and, and eat it together. And uh, this is because when she used to live with us in the U.S. when I was a child growing up, um, she had sort of experienced pizza here in the U.S., and that was a, sort of a tradition that she took back with her when she returned home to to Beijing. Um, so yeah, I was interested in in doing something for this series, Life in Chains. I definitely had this like sort of tangible topic to write about. I was also interested in doing something of a reversal or a flip on like this idea that I think is like pretty prevalent in a lot of essays about chains with uh, by like the children of immigrants in the US like members of the diaspora, where, you know, in America, it becomes sort of very important to 
have this American chain like in their lives. Like that is maybe what sort of their family that immigrated here. That's sort of like the thing that helps them feel more connected to this, this new land, this new home country. Um, so I was interested in that idea, but kind of having, I thought it was funny at least that my experience was almost like a, a reversal in a way. You know, I, I went to China to experience this very American chain, um, and that's like the way that my grandmother in in China felt connected to us. Uh, so, kind of playing with that idea a little bit. Um, but yeah, I I was happy to to do this. It was kind of my first or one of my first uh, longer pieces. I think and definitely one of my first longer essays that I've published. And you know, I still have uh, fond memories of you know writing this and and being able to to get it online and out in the world. Absolutely. And like the reversal you speak about is crystal clear that that thread throughout the piece. And I feel like you, you really, you are threading a needle there because you, you can kind of, you, d- you didn't want to write about the thing, which is like the way Pizza Hut is portrayed or, or cooked in China as like a, some kind of oddity to the American gaze, I guess. I, I don't know. You did it in a way that felt extremely real and, and, and personal to you. And I, I think that was hard to do. So I, I recommend our reader, our listeners, check that out. I I wrote in my notes and I didn't write anything more, but I was like, deep breath, food TikTok. <laughs> because like deep breath, like, can we talk about this? Yeah. Anna and I are working on a story or two. I, I am torn big time. Uh, and like, I feel like t- food TikTok is extremely fun and cool. But it's getting a little bit crazy out there. What do you think about it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I use TikTok a lot. I'm on there probably more hours of the day than I should be, for sure. And I do consume like a lot of uh, food TikToks and food videos on, on that app, I, I would say. Um, I mean, I enjoy it a lot. Like, I enjoy the kinds of maybe like normal cooking, I guess you could say that people do on there now. And, uh, and especially I love the, like what I ate in a day sort of, uh, food diary videos. Um, but yeah, there is a sort of interesting thing in that, especially I've noticed for what it means for like recipe developers and the original authors of recipes, like how their stuff gets translated onto TikTok and, uh, sort of stripped of context, stripped of authorship, and uh, distributed widely across the app is kind of an interesting phenomenon. I'd say probably not not great for the original creators of any of these recipes. Um, but yeah, that's just like one small thread. I think. What are your some of your like concerns about uh, food TikTok? I'm really curious, Jenny. I actually been thinking about TikTok a lot because I consume it as well. Like I really love it. And I, I like you, I probably consume too much of it. And I love jumping into folks' kitchens. I like the normie core stuff. Um, I like the stuff that goes viral. I'm all, I'm really interested in it. There's no negativity from my end. I'm, I probably misspoke. I, I feel like I am curious if the TikTok star of today that we're following will become the next food star. And if there's a transition of energy from you know, the BA Test Kitchen and Food Network where we've anointed big stars and given them books and they're great and they, you know, they have platforms. If like TikTok is like the next like real influencer kind of moment or or venue, it's more of a venue. 
because it is such an amazing algorithm, it finds an audience better than anything. And um, I think they're really democratizing food in a cool way. So that's like my, I wouldn't even call it concern. It's just my observation. I'm just very curious. And you cover this. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think I think so. I think we are seeing like the, the rise of new kinds of tastemakers, influencers, especially among younger audiences. Like they, like kids who are in their teens, like college students, I don't think a lot of them are turning on like Food Network. They're like tuning in to the old, older kind of generations of cookbook authors, recipe developers, things like that. Like video content is really what young people consume, whether that is on YouTube or TikTok right now. And so I do see like this uh, new class of, I guess what you would call like food stars rising up on it. Um, I think, I don't know what the next step is for them from here. Like is the move to get a cookbook deal? And I'm sure like some of them already have or to get a network TV show or like a larger YouTube series. I don't know like what the next step of stardom is. Like what is the new kind of like signifier that, you know, you've made it, you're on to the next level. Is it going to be the same as it was for, uh, you know, millennial Gen X, like older generations? Uh, I really, I really am not sure. Like do, do younger people care about cookbooks anymore? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I hope people still love reading um for my own own sake like uh personally and career wise so i do hope people still love like text and like these these things that they aren't just like consuming uh you know blankly <laughs> online well we're going to have etan eats uh on uh the taste podcast in a in a future episode and he has a book coming out so he's actually by my calculations, one of the first big TikTok stars to have a cookbook come out. I think Joanna from uh, from the Korean Vegan uh, is a special case because I feel like that book, while she had a massive TikTok following and a social following, that book in, in, on its own was incredible and, and didn't necessarily break out because of her platform. It was just a really cool book in general and, and was praised right, rightfully so. But we'll have to ask him like what honestly he thinks about his book and, and his if people are gonna buy his book <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about gawker you know let you know legendary brand uh we you know the history of gawker is rich and you can google and find out um the ups and downs of the brand and you're part of a new gawker uh i believe that's a trademark the new gawker with capital letters <laughs> i'm a fan of of gawker uh prior and now it's it's always been um like five steps ahead of most of the media and the style of writing is extremely um, adventurous and and bold and and brave. Um, but I wanted to hear about you because you're one of the the main food writers on Gawker. I, you write about a lot of other topics and you write about the news and culture, but you also write a food column. But let's I would like to hear about what uh, the current vibe is at, at Gawker. Yeah. Um, so I was a big fan of the uh, old Gawker, original Gawker. I read it a lot when I was a college student. Um, and I followed like very closely my favorite writers and like the, the ultimate demise of that project. Um, and yeah, like getting to participate in this current iteration has been exciting. It's been up and down for sure like especially trying to get this new venture off the ground you know seeing what everyone's reaction to it is and um, but mostly it's just like 
yeah, we, we keep chugging along. We keep doing our thing, writing, uh, what we want to, and, and just trust that like, a it's a dedicated audience, uh, will sort of continue to tune in to what we're doing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how I'm approaching it. I, of course, like continue to blog on a regular basis, like just like news blogs, like things happening, uh, not just in food, but in, like celebrity culture or like, um, internet stuff or politics, things like that. And then, um, I've had the time also to be able to work on some longer pieces that I'm, you know, really grateful. I've been able to find a home for here, like some, I guess like thornier culture topics. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like a summary of what I've been doing since, uh, I guess it's been maybe nine. It's been almost yeah, a year, like right? Nine months, 10 months. It, it's been almost a year. 10 months. What was the pitch to you to to come to Gawker and you know with your background as a is a primarily not not fully but primarily as a food writer? Um, I hope that doesn't undersell you. You no, just had a lot of clips in food. So what was the sales pitch uh, to come join Gawker and be the you know the main voice for food at this brand? What what were they, what were they looking to do? Well, I guess, and I, I you know I can't really speak to like what they were looking for in me specifically, but. I mean, yeah, I guess, like, I I primarily wrote in food, but, like, not exclusively about food itself. I used to tweet a lot more and about things like media and, uh, you know, uh, other things that are mostly not food related. And so I think maybe that is what got uh, their attention. And I used to have a newsletter of my own that I... I used to sort of dissect long form piece, long form pieces by by other writers that I liked, and that was also sort of an exercise and I don't know displaying like some level of taste or analysis or something like that. Um, so I think maybe those were things that kind yeah. of were on my side, I guess, uh, in terms of maybe them approaching me. I loved your annotated newsletter where you picked a long form piece and you did did basically cliff notes and and you know comment bubbles about leads about uh, kickers about structure it's a real like nerdy writerly kind of yeah. concept and amazing <laughs> <laughs> thank you um uh, i <laughs> i wish i could pick it back up but yeah currently still no. too much stuff to do um too much to do those takes a lot of yeah, work but yeah so i guess like on my, that was on my end and then like on their end like their sales pitch was basically you know you can come here and write about whatever you want. Like, you don't have to just write about food. Um, since I guess, like, that is something that I've been, like, uh, vocal about, where I'm, like, I have a lot of interests that are mostly not food-related. Um, I consider myself, like, a sort of generalist in that way. Um, so that was kind of the the pitch. And, you know, since I was such a fan of the original Gawker, it was kind of a, a hard opportunity to pass up uh i imagine like a once in a lifetime kind of opportunity and i'm typically very scared of change but i was like this whether this is good or bad like this will probably do something so yeah i i said yes and i do mostly write about things that are not food related but like you said i have a semi-regular food column uh called regular food reviews that's just sort of like a a passion project of my own so let's talk about that. I love I regular food review, which uh, I mean, as the title suggests, you're 
There's no, um, well, I mean, the, the title, let's just talk about the title because I'm, I'm like kind of stumbling because I'm like, is it regular or like what like what are you doing with that title and first off yeah um so my original title that i wanted to call it was ordinary food reviews um if that tells you anything but i think we we went with regular food reviews because it both describes like what i was trying to do the ordinary slash regular slash like quotidian aspect of the things i was consuming uh but also regular is in like this will be kind of like a regular column a regular series so yeah, it's mostly just me giving very short reviews about the ordinary things I consume in everyday life, whether that is like a handful of chips or uh, some frozen microwave food or a really nice like uh, meal at a restaurant or something like that, or a home-cooked dish like on a Friday night or whatever. It's really just like no criteria except like, you know, it's it's something I, I eat on a on a regular basis, just an ordinary food. I love it. And you wrote one. I'm just going to start and you can finish. I recently bought a 52 pack of Quaker instant oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that one. Yeah, that one was the recent one. Um, so I as I explained in this one, um, I recently had like a a tooth extraction thing. Um, it's a weird thing with my teeth. I have a bunch of extra teeth that are not supposed to be there. And one of them decided to erupt out of my gum line for no apparent reason. So I, I had this tooth extraction that I was pretty sure would be painful and I'd have to like sort of plan my way around it in terms of food. So I bought this huge uh, box of oatmeal from Costco and I've been like chipping away at that. Although I've like reincorporated totally like regular food into my like consumption habits again. Uh, but still like I'm, I'm very glad to have bought that that oatmeal because it revived this sort of uh, passion for oatmeal that I have not indulged in for a long time. You haven't in a while, and you're doing okay? Yeah, yeah, totally fine. I'm, like, eating hard foods. I'm eating crunchy foods, like, stuff that I probably still should be a little bit careful about. But, uh, yeah, there's always oatmeal if I'm really just, like, not feeling like cooking or buying or doing anything in, in terms of effort it's, it's there for me i love that i recall i was a fan of the apple there was also cinnamon there was also oh, the original yeah. which was so boring i hated that yeah the the apple cinnamon one is like uh very good yeah i agree um what's a future topic that we're gonna read in on gawker i can't say anything like for sort of our broader coverage but oh yeah yeah um, no, no, no worries. Uh, I do have one. I think I'll probably write about dumplings with like wings, like the the Japanese like gyoza style uh, wings, like the crispy lacy bottom. So I made that. Uh, I I would say within the last month, and I was struck by like how easy it is to get those crispy wings. And I'll probably uh, reincorporate that into my my regular tricks when it comes to dumplings. That's dope. So you're saying like the we've written about that, like the dumpling skirt, like yeah, that crispy the, the bottom. skirt, the wings. Uh, so I will probably just review that regularly as my next ordinary regular food review. Love that. We I think Tatiana Batista wrote a piece about that for a Taste uh, a few years ago, and I'll make sure to link to that because I love that on your piece too because. That is definitely the key to the gyoza experience, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Having that wing. Second deep breath moment. So deep breath. Okay. Food and chef NFTs. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, exhale. Okay. Oh my, I'm like <laughs> kind of at a loss, but what do you got to say about that? Well, I haven't been paying a lot of attention to like what chefs in particular are doing in this realm. Um, what, like what, how, what have they been doing? Are there like big name chefs who have been like going all in on NFTs? Absolutely. It seems so for, uh, for those, uh, who haven't heard of the term NFT, non-fungible token, it's crypto backed, uh, uh, crypto-backed um, assets, or you know, uh, something a chef could sell in the in the metaverse. Um, <laughs> uh, Pat, our producer, is shaking his head, uh, which I love because it's uh, NFTs are, are complicated to explain. I really didn't do a great job there, but uh, I've seen chefs uh, selling uh, digital food, which oh my God. is all right, or art that is considered food, like burgers and pizzas and stuff like that. I'm not going to snark on the NFT as a, I think it's too early to to really, you know, kill the NFT. Um, and there's a lot of fun there, but I I feel like the food stuff is tough. Uh, it feels a little opportunistic at this moment. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, NFTs in general right now is like the the sort of cash grab moment. Like there is a lot of opportunity, uh, whether that is being exploited by by bad actors or it's you know other kinds of people who see the opportunity in this right now food is an interesting one because yeah nfts as they have been i guess like used so far is is mostly as like a you know an art object or what people say is like quote unquote art object essentially collectible (laughs) and like big air yeah i would definitely like (laughs) that is sort of betraying my skepticism surrounding this so far but yeah, like the point of it is to look at it, but also mostly just to own it. So food, the point of it is to eat it, which you cannot do remotely within a food NFT. I guess you can look at it. Um, I guess like the the main point still is to just like own something, own this thing, own this asset. Um, and I guess like for that purpose, sure, they probably fulfill that. But it does seem very strange i don't know i'm i have like skepticism surrounding uh this entire sort of project uh so i will not be speaking from an unbiased point of view yeah i i think food sometimes go transcends like the 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 taste and i think it becomes cultural currency and and almost real currency when you're talking about a limited hamburger drop literally people use that kind of language around food and so it's like more about the cronut even like Dominique Ansel did that back in the day and like so like you're saying okay you can't eat an NFT sure I agree but a lot of people eat food for now about the the food part it's about the the digital asset the, the Instagram post or the, the the word of mouth you're giving your friend so I could see some creative chefs using it to show creativity and you know talk about their expertise or show their expertise in food um, it still seems extremely douchey to me. <laughs> no, but that's a really interesting <laughs> way to think about it. I hadn't, you know, thought about it from that angle before. Like, yeah, so much of food already, or like the hyped food is, it's already plays as a form of digital currency. So this is just like the natural evolution of that. Uh, that's, that's really smart. I mean, that's, I appreciate that. <laughs> I think it's, uh, there's no real answers here. Um, I think that this first wave, though, is the cash grab. I fully agree with you. There'll be an evening out of that. And, and I think, I mean, there is a future with, uh, you know, the, the metaverse and your life, you know, in Web3 in that world. 
So not, not looking forward to it, but yes, that seems inevitable yeah. in some sense. I love it. I love that you say you're not looking forward <laughs> to it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's going to be interesting. I have a few more questions. Yeah. I want to talk to you about uh, just your media media diet in terms of who you like to read and uh, subscribe to in food media. I feel like you've got great instincts and taste, and I just I've always I'm always going to ask you like who you're reading these days. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I continue to check Eater uh, very regularly, uh, not just because, you know, I, I have a lingering fondness, although I do, of course, for uh, all of Eater. So like the local Eater sites, like uh, the city sites, great for just general food and restaurant news. Um, Eater.com, you know, is still a great visit for longer features, reports, um, interesting takes, things like that. Uh, otherwise, I do tend to like to read food sort of like as as a beat in like larger, more general interest uh, publications like for New Yorker magazine, like what they're saying about food, um, you know, the Times magazine, what they're doing with food, um, things like that. And of course, I do have like my favorite writers and people who have newsletters as well, like. Alicia Kennedy, I think, remains uh, a big favorite in, because she also, like, approaches food as this, you know, entry point for a l- discussing a lot of other things like labor, you know, colonialism, uh, everything. So she's she's a really, really smart read. And I... Uh, Plant-based diets. Yeah, yeah. She's on that beat extremely thoroughly and, and and I agree with you she's somebody she's written for taste and and I've read her newsletter since day one and it's a great read yeah yeah so I I love reading her newsletter um in terms of other newsletters uh my friend and, and former eater colleague um James Hansen he for a while ran a, a substack newsletter called indigestion that was sort of like a, a roundup summary of like what's going on in food media uh, I think he still has it on pause right now, but I used to like reading that a lot. And then Vittles London, like a, a lot of people I'm sure have named that, but that's another really great newsletter that is also functioning as as more or less like a fully fledged uh, publication right now. Like that's some great food writing out of London and the UK, even though I have never been, but it really makes me like r- want to go and, and travel and try all these different places. I mean, when when I worked at Eater, I feel like half of the pieces that we like sort of dropped in Slack and were like, hey, check this out. Or like, I'm jealous we didn't do this was like stuff from taste. Um, oh, yeah, especially like not, that was nice. No, yeah. this is like genuine. And I, I really loved uh, I don't keep up at, like up that much with uh, food news anymore. But taste is a really good place for kind of more magazine style, uh, interesting probes into things that are going on right now. Uh, so that was also a big favorite when I, you know, had to think about food for a living every day. Nice of you to say, and, and we've, we've interviewed, uh, the editor of Vittles mm-hmm. and, and James has written for mm-hmm. taste and, and great call on those that will definitely mark those in our notes. Um, thank you for shouting out. Do you have any more that you want to shout out? Oh, wait, actually I will say, um, the counter is also really good for like a, a kind of different look at uh the topic of news like they they, they covered a lot from the the sort of uh labor or agricultural or policy uh point of view so uh i think th- yeah they were formerly known as new food economy but they've rebranded as the counter great read uh 
covering policy, covering, you know, the the farm bill, which is ever changing and ever debated and so critical to our country. Uh, the counter is a must. In, and I, I forget about the counter when we're doing our Friday links roundup on our newsletter, and I should I should go there more often. Great reminder, Jenny. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. I have to ask you about cookbooks, too, because, you know, we we deal with cookbooks a lot here at Taste. Uh, do you have some favorites, uh, either past or present? I just – I want to ask you about your media diet because I just think you've got great taste. Oh, so, thank you. You know. Um, yeah, so I, I confess, I, I think I said before, I'm not a huge cookbook person. I do like them as like a beautiful books, like objects um, as from like my day-to-day cooking. If I need anything, I usually just like turn to the internet for uh, recipes and New York Times cooking. I have a subscription. Um, but for like as cookbooks is sort of like a a literary object, I, I do have a few like I I have a copy of Samin Nozrat's uh, Sulfat Acid Heat and I still like love to go through that just to sort of become more educated i guess on the the basics and fundamentals of cooking uh there's some really great books by um fadon like like just by different uh cookbook authors but definitely more sort of like art objects like i love that the way that they lay out their pages and have the the art and the photos take center stage and have so much about uh like travel aspects or different cultural aspects they have that in there that's sort of my the extent of my experience with cookbooks i guess uh, i'm i would yeah love, you're not a big yeah i, I mean yeah. if you have, anyone has recommendations for things that are like yeah like really good reading like great essays great great photos great anything else uh, i would love some more cookbook recommendations i was reading women on food recently mm. charlotte Druckmann's oh yeah anthology I love that mm-hmm. book. I, I gotta. I've been trying to shout it out to many people because I feel like it. It's been a few years, and just come back to that book is important. It's it's just a really well edited book. We ask all of our guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food book without the burden of time, you know, like a deadline or budget, like you had endless money. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jenny, what would that book be? I guess I would love to do maybe a more travel oriented cookbook or food book, like. Maybe traveling throughout China. Um, my family is like Chinese American, obviously, and then traveling throughout China, collecting the recipes of other people. Since I'm not like much of a recipe developer myself, and treating it more like a, a travelogue or kind of an anthropological project. So I know like Fisha Dunlop, her her books on Chinese cooking are are really good like really well researched just very thorough so she kind of has that covered but yeah I guess for myself I I treat it as an opportunity to go traveling and sort of like write down other people's stories a little bit I love that what would be a region of China that you'd want to focus on that maybe gets a little less coverage is there is there some some place there that you'd want to go and focus on well my uh my dad's side of the family is from Wenzhou like the this sort of mid mid-sized city called Wenzhou in the Zhejiang region. So I that is a place that doesn't get a whole lot of like a sort of mainstream, you know, Western media coverage. And I'd be interested in, in starting there, I guess, especially because, you know, the the geography of Wenzhou and some of the surrounding places, it's kind of very specific. It's very mountainous. So there was sort of a lot of uh, isolated development uh, sort of outside the pockets of you know, how the, the rest of the country was developing at certain points in history. So I have always been really curious about 
you know, how that has affected uh, everything from the food to manufacturing to cultural traditions to, you know, dialects there that are quite different from other dialects in, in China. So maybe I'd be interested in starting there. Yeah, that would be cool. I, I, I think if you could travel and, and your point of view would be very unique and, and very, you know, you and use some of the memoir writing that you've done, I feel that would be a really cool project to read as a reader. Thank you. I guess uh, maybe I will think about that as a as a future project. <laughs> <laughs> Chang Zhang, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.